We think it's going to hit 90 degrees tomorrow, and Laura Johnston will be sleeping outside with Girl Scouts. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Laura and Layla Atasi and Lisa Garvin. Laura, are you looking forward to being outside in the sultry weather? I am so nervous about this. This is the first time we've taken our troop overnight camping. And, okay, we're not going to sleep outside. I think I'll wish that we were sleeping outside because we're in a cabin when it's 90 degrees with no air conditioning. Uh, And apparently at Girl Scout Camp, you are not allowed to wear tank tops. So I think that's going to be my new camp name. Apparently, you got to choose a camp name. So mine's going to be tank tops. Not allowed to wear tank tops at Girl Scout Camp. Something about ticks. And they're worried about ticks, so they want oh. everybody oh. wearing sleeves. Yeah. So uh, that's actually yeah. really smart. Sleeves that makes sense. Yeah, like just short sleeves. I will tell you what, though, Laura. I was forced to take my troop in the worst week of March, and it was like that. It was like being in a just a, a, a mucky, disgusting mud. Like we were trying to shoot the. Uh, archery and then you had to go get your arrows and it was like every kid was losing their boots in the mud (laughs) as they were trudging out to retrieve their arrows and rain pouring down on us so i would take this week over that okay any day okay well i'm doing canoeing so i might be falling in the pond accidentally (laughs) we'll be checking in with you monday to see how it went let's get to our news Restaurant owner Zach Bruel came up with a novel way to find workers for his understaffed locations. Is there no end in sight for the worker shortage in Northeast Ohio eateries? Laura, this is pressing because patio season is beginning and they're ready to serve a whole lot more people. They don't have the servers. Right. They're not exactly ready to serve a whole lot more people because there is no end in sight of this restaurant uh, server shortage. Most restaurants say they've got fine in the back. They've got enough cooks and um, and chefs, but they don't have enough servers. And as Mark Bona put it very artistically, help wanted signs are as ubiquitous as happy hour specials. So Zach Bruel actually went on nextdoor.com asking for workers. He said no one wants to work, even though you can make $450 in one shift serving tables, which is incredible money. He says he doesn't get it, but he's gotten some good response from from his post, and he said he's willing to train people. And it actually worked better than going on Indeed.com, which is a popular job-seeking site. But he is he is definitely not alone in this. Mark Bona talked to a whole bunch of restaurateurs who are all, most of them are in the same boat looking for people uh, as the summer gets started. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I saw the message from him. That's why we did the story. And mm-hmm. what was interesting is there was a lot of reaction. And one of the reactions was a mom saying, hey, my kid's coming home from college. You know, can we make an arrangement? And somebody came back and said, you know, you really ought to have the kid apply themselves. Restaurants don't like momagers. I'd not heard that term. <laughs> oh, momagers. That's like a usually I think of like a stage manager, like stage mom kind of um, of nickname. But um I mean, hey, I think Zach Bruel will take the mom's application for the kid because they are looking for for people. There's a QSR is a magazine for leisure and hospitality. It says that there's a 6.4% quit rate. Uh, that's more than double the national averages in industries all over the place. And so some restaurants are, are struggling so much that if somebody's calling on off the owners or their kids are going into work, uh, managers are pulling double duty. They're stepping in when they're not scheduled. Um, I think Hofbräuhaus House downtown said they're having, having a really tough time. And they just say, 
people don't want to work 50 hours a week. They want, and, and the ones who do want to work are very specific about what they want in their schedule and they, they're going to work, you know, they're putting your work second and their life first. It's going to be interesting to see if the next door message board now fills up with restaurant owners <laughs> looking for workers. Uh, I imagine that next door will frown on that and say, if you want to advertise, you got to charge. But smart move by, by Zach. It sounds like he's going to get the workers he needs. Check out Mark Bona's story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lee Weingart had one big shell in his bazooka in his battle to beat Democrat Chris Ronain in the race for county executive, and he has fired it. He says that Chris Ronain ran a police department that racially profiled. Pretty explosive stuff, Layla. Yes, he is... Um he is accusing his opponent of of of, of poor leadership and a, a blatant indifference to equal justice after records show that University Circle Police continued to cite black drivers at a disproportionate rate um, after a year after Chris Ronane promised to address that disparity. You know, Chris Ronane before he launched launched his campaign for executive, he was president of University Circle Inc. And during that time, ProPublica did this investigation in 2020 that found that 88% of the nearly 2,000 drivers that University Circle police had cited um, uh, since 2015 were black. In an interview with ProPublica, Ronane called the numbers disconcerting to say the least and that he was horrified. He promised immediate change and he said that they were looking into working with outside firms to review that data and, and, and consider revising practices or seeking additional training. Well, Ronane's opponent in the race here, you know, Lee Weingart, he says that in the 11 months after that article ran, Renane didn't do anything to address that problem. He pulled the records himself and found that 94% of the 237 traffic citations issued between September 2020 and July 2021 still went to black drivers. Weingart didn't quite call Ronane a racist, but he said he is a failed leader who absolutely shouldn't be running the county. Ronane defends that he did take action to initiate change. He says he mandated implicit bias training for all police staff. He got body cameras to increase the transparency, and he created the Citizens Review Board to investigate and issue findings on complaints. Um, but, you know, I think a scene story pointed out that, that that body didn't even really meet to investigate any of those findings. But, you know, Ronane's like, oh, well, you know, reform takes time and he's in, he's committed to inve investing in that and um, and blah, blah, mush, mush, mush. That's kind of how Ronane plays it all the time. So um, so it, this, you know, the, you're right. This was this was bombshelly here. Um, there, and he didn't quite couple, have good answers to it. There, yeah, there are a couple things that really stood out in the story. The the police department arguing that well, we're surrounded by East Cleveland and black cities. And I just to set to set the stage for just how preposterous that claim is that because we're surrounded by black cities, most of the drivers in University Circle are black. Let's remember the Cleveland Clinic is in University Circle. University Hospitals is in University Circle. Little Italy's University Circle, Case is University Circle. People come from all over Northeast Ohio to go to North, to University Circle. So to say we're surrounded by black neighborhoods, that's why it's it that's just ridiculous and it speaks to the lack of reform that's happened there. The only answer to this was 
yes, this is a nightmare. We have to fix it. I do think we're talking about like one ticket a day. This is not a department that I think writes hundreds of tickets a day or dozens of tickets a day, but their explanation is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the study uh, pointed out that many of the tickets went to residents of zip codes in Euclid, which was then 54% black and Garfield Heights, which was 38% black. Um, You know, racial demographics in the university circle area fluctuate drastically during the day when employees, patients and visitors saturate that area. So it's it is an area that is constantly flowing with different, uh, you know, it's it's not it's it's not just the people who live there and in the immediate area. It is it's one of the most, uh, you know, the most, you know, dynamic parts of the city. So to say that it's still, well, you know, that's that's the that's the demographic of the of the community. So that's naturally who who will receive the tickets is just bogus. Well, they're look, they're clearly profiling, but this raises another issue that I wish Weingart would have come out with because it would have been bold. This speaks to the whole idea of having police departments that work for private entities. Think about why we as a civilization created police. We created police that we fund with taxes to serve us and be accountable to us. For some reason, Ohio decided to allow private agencies to have police powers. They don't serve the public. They serve the agency. They don't answer to the public. And there's zero accountability. The Cleveland Clinic has it. Metro Health has it. Tri-C's, Cleveland State, they all have them. And it abuses the police authority. They shouldn't have a, a police department with the force of law. What is happening in University Circle is the police want black people from the neighborhoods to be afraid to drive into University Circle because they have the power of the police officer to intimidate them. If they just had a security force, like most private entities do in most of the country, we wouldn't have this problem. But it's that police authority that does it. And I wish I wish Lee would have said, this points out the problem of having all these private police departments in Cuyahoga County. If I'm elected, I'm going to seek to abolish them and have the municipal police departments and the sheriff's office mm-hmm. do the patrolling. Right. Right. You're right. You know, I, I, I feel for Chris. He was the head of an economic development agency that had a police department. You know, his goal was economic development. But the minute he learned about this, and he took some steps, he says, but he didn't follow up. It, the problem continued. That's a, that's a failure. But he shouldn't have had a police department to begin with. This is a ridiculous situation in this state. And the message to black people is don't go to University Circle. We're looking for you. As a leader, though, you can't make promises to change and not follow through, not follow through at all. I mean, okay, fine, the the body cameras and things like that. But if you're going to create some sort of review board and not once meet and not once review a case, that shows that is so that's such disregard for for the community. And that's really very troubling. Right. He should have followed through. He should have he should have done the right thing here. But I would argue that this problem emanates from having a police department that doesn't answer to anybody. Right. You know, think about it. If a Cleveland police officer does something like this, there's a mayor who's demanding accountability of the police chief. And if the mayor doesn't, you got voters that demand accountability of the mayor. We have no recourse here. The, the public has no ability to change this 
really bad behavior by people who have badges and are invested with the power to put you in jail. That you know, it's a critical problem. Weingart made this statement in the story where he said, everything I've heard about Chris Ronane is he's a show horse, not a workhorse. Oh, sing. He said yeah. he made a statement and thought that would be enough. Then the cameras are off and nobody's looking anymore and he doesn't fix it. Yeah, and I he, just thought that was biting. He had one shell in his arsenal. He fired it. It's a bit early. Um, if he And it's a negative shot and, he, and he's got his headline and he's got people talking about it. What's next in the campaign? We'll see. Check out Caitlin Durbin's story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With inflation, one of the top stories of 2022 so far, elderly people living on fixed incomes are getting slammed. Lisa, where are they feeling it the most? They're feeling it everywhere, apparently. Our reporter, Sean McDonald, talked to several greater Cleveland advocates for seniors, and uh, several of them said that financial issues for elderly people on a fixed income were already a problem before the pandemic struck. Um, he talked to Stephanie Brooks. She's with the AARP Ohio she, Executive Council, and she advocates for seniors in other ways. She says many elders are only living on Social Security. They have insufficient savings. They have no retirement account contributions. Social Security saw a big bump most recently, about 5.9% in the cost of living adjustment. But over the last 10 years, Social Security adjustments have only averaged about 1.65% a year. Um, Sean also talked with Craig Thomas with the Western Reserve Area Agency on Aging. He said the people they talk to are struggling with basic needs. They have to choose what bills to pay. Do they pay rent? Do they buy food? Do they get their medicine? Do they pay their utilities? Also, with housing costs appreciating, they're paying higher property taxes now. And uh, the Western Reserve Agency does help seniors, but they have a long wait list for assistance. Wouldn't you love it if Lee Weingart and Chris Ronane paid attention to this kind of story and came out with campaign planks about how they were going to reduce the burden, especially on, on the elderly? Actually, Lee Weingart has said he would freeze property taxes for the elderly, although I'm not sure how he can pull that off when there's a bunch of agencies that create taxes like the Metro Parks and and the Adams board. But th this is a big deal. We hear about this from a lot of people saying, I can't afford it. And everybody talks about the price of gas. That's a tiny fraction of the bill. It's these mm -hmm. other things, housing, mm -hmm. food, all the basic needs that they can't get because they've gotten so expensive. And there, and you know, the cost of living is not keeping up with inflation or or anything right now. The United Way of Greater Cleveland, their two one one calls are increasing exponentially. The calls from people sixty five and over last year were over twenty thousand calls, and they were able to help just about everybody because United Way has fingers in a lot of pies, and they can, you know, help people. But yeah, the need is growing. Okay, good story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked Wednesday about an unneeded amendment to the Ohio Constitution likely going to the voters to prohibit non-citizens from voting in municipal elections. I do want to clarify that wasn't just people who are in the country illegally. It also involved legal people who are in the country, immigrants who are in the country legally, but not U.S. citizens. Do Republicans have a second ballot question on their minds to try and drive up votes from conservatives, this one involving crime? Laura, it seems like the Republicans are using constitutional amendments to try and win the November election. 
Yeah, I can't wait till we start seeing the ads about this one. But uh, this seems to be the exact opposite of bail reform that we've been pushing for as an editorial board for years and the Supreme Court is in favor of. Um, And it's a bill for the November ballot requiring judges to consider new factors for public safety when setting bail. This was supposed to be on a list of bills up for a House vote on Wednesday, although House Speaker Bob Cupp said he wanted to discuss it more with the Republican caucus before a vote. And it would add to the Ohio Constitution this sentence. When determining the amount of bail, the court shall consider public safety, a person's criminal record, the likelihood a person will return to court, and the seriousness of a person's offense. Rather than looking at whether they're a flight risk, um, looking at if, if people can afford to pay, and all of the other things that people have been pushing for to reduce prison populations. Except this is already in the law. They're right. They're putting a clause in... As as another inducement saying, oh, my God, they're letting people go who are a danger. There's already a fully vetted system for doing this. There's not a problem with the Ohio law. Judges have the full power and authority and a history of protecting public safety when there's a danger to it. I mean, so this is completely unneeded and it's being done to try and get votes for the Republicans running for the Supreme Court. They want to deflect the attention that Pat DeWine and Sharon Kennedy are getting for their conflicts of interest as they proceed as justices. I think if this comes about, we're going to be very vocal in pointing out that it's completely unnecessary and that it's it's to fool you as a voter, well, and we make use, you worry. Right. We've used the word dog whistle over and over again, but like this doesn't feel like a dog whistle. It feels like very blatant. And I don't know. It does. It doesn't. It feel like it flies in the face of everything we've been learning about the criminal justice system and how unfair it is and how discriminatory. And I mean, I guess the point is they don't care. I mean, obviously. Yeah. But but it but the problem it's already there. I mean, if you if somebody who is a danger to the community is arrested, there is a whole process in the law as it exists now to not let them go free. It it requires a hearing and they have to do some things. There was one case people are pointing to where the judges failed to follow that path and they're holding this one outlier up as a reason to change the Ohio Constitution. But this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's all about let's let's scare the hell out of people, mainly Republicans, get them to the polls. And it is a dog whistle. Well, critics think that this could raise bail amounts, which, I mean, the Eighth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and the Ohio Constitution itself prohibit excessive bail. So um, it just seems completely wrong. Yeah, it's not needed, but the goal is to get people to the polls. I think we should keep the attention focused on the ridiculous conflicts of interest to some of the justices who are running. Pat DeWine has done something nobody's ever done before that we can find, remained on a case involving his dad, the governor. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have pretty serious criminal charges now against a company involved in the collapse of a Lakewood apartment garage last year. Layla, it's kind of rare to see criminal charges in a case like this, but the evidence is pretty strong that this company was in the wrong. Yeah, it's the company is Atlas Masonry Restoration and Maintenance, and its owner, Elmer Mecker, and foreman Charles Hawley. They're accused of inducing panic. This is connected to their work on, on the underground parking deck at Marine Towers West Apartments on Edgewater Drive on Lakewood's Gold Coast. 
The company that manages the apartment building had hired Atlas Masonry for concrete repairs to the garage in November, but the company didn't pull a permit before starting that work. And then on December 21st, Holly and a co-worker started stripping concrete off the pillars that held up the structure, but they didn't put any additional support up to, to brace the columns, and that left only exposed rebar. The structure collapsed 18 hours later, and by just sheer luck, no, was in, no one was in the garage at the time, but somebody had just left less than a minute before. It was just miraculous that nobody was killed in this in this incident. So the company had been charged in January in, in Lakewood Muni Court with a failure to secure a proper permit, and Mecker pleaded no contest in April. The judge con- convicted the company and posed a $1,500 fine with $500 sus- um, uh with $500 suspended and, and place the, the company on a one-year probation. But now prosecutors charge them with a subsection of the inducing panic law that outlaws causing, quote, the evacuation of any public space or otherwise causing serious public inconvenience or alarm by committing any offense with reckless disregard of the likelihood that its commission would cause serious public inconvenience or alarm and result in an economic harm of $150,000 or more. That's a third-degree felony. But you know what? It Doesn't it feel like they had to really search the law books for a way yeah. to hold these guys accountable for this? <laughs> I, I would think that a reckless act that results in a public hazard would fit the criminal code somewhere, and it sounds yeah. like it doesn't. I mean, they, they, it, it, if this is true, they were incredibly reckless. They set up a very, very dangerous situation, and you're right, just by luck, it didn't kill somebody or injure somebody. That should be enough to file right. a felony charge, but but this seems like a reach. Uh, I mean, it's the, to induce a public panic just seems like an yeah. odd one. It feels but. like there should be a more direct way to bring felony charges against a reckless contractor who not only skipped out on permits, but put a lot of people's lives at risk by stripping off that concrete without properly buttressing the structure. It feels like settling upon a subsection of the inducing panic law is a weird way to go about holding them to account. Like for like what if what if the apartment building wasn't adjoining and didn't need to be evacuated? Would that still be considered inducing panic? They yeah, wouldn't have know. they wouldn't have had a way to charge these guys when they deserve to be. So I, what would they've yeah. done? Just let them go? <laughs> I don't know. They would have found another element of the law. I, who knows? Criminal damaging. I mean, you can't. It's so weird. It's weird I mean, that, that that there's so like, you know, I don't know what would what would what's out there to, to why? I don't know. That That's alarming to me that that there's nothing really in the law that that governs this kind of thing. OK, you're listening than, to Today in Ohio. Yeah. Amish buggies already are required to have red lights in the back and white lights on the front after dark. The Ohio legislature doesn't think that's enough. What more do the lawmakers want on the buggies to reduce fatal collisions with cars? And Lisa, these aren't motorized, so anything they put on there has to run off of a battery. That's correct. House Bill 30 requires Amish buggies to display yellow flashing lights on the top rear of the buggy that would be visible from the sides. It passed the Ohio Senate with a unanimous vote and now goes to Governor DeWine for his signature. It passed the House back in April on an 85-6 to six vote, so the six no votes were all Republicans. Um, there were 120 crashes 
in 2020 involving Amish buggies. 60% of them were in daytime hours. I have to point out that a similar bill died in the Senate back in 2020 after passing the House. Apparently, there are concerns about First Amendment challenges like freedom of religion. People say that if this law is passed, that there could be an avenue to file a soft lawsuit for freedom of religion. Because as you say, they're going to have to power those lights in some way. Well, the, the question I have is, is there any research that says having that light on the top makes it more visible than the red lights and the white lights they already have? You know, I'm old enough to remember when the law changed and you had to move the brake light to the top of the car window. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was growing up, they just had the brake lights down down lower. And the, there was lots of evidence that that higher placed red light saved lives, that people could see it more. Is there any research to say that this will stop cars from crashing in the buggies or is it just a just a well there's a lot of buggy deaths we should do something i think that's what it is i there, there hasn't been any research cited that i've seen but you know as you said moving those brake lights up in cars made a huge difference and if you think somebody's driving a big truck or an suv they may not see you know or a high profile vehicle they may not see those lower down red lights in the back so yeah, it, it's interesting. It, and it's going to the governor now, right? He, it'll be that on is his correct. Desk to sign. Yeah, yes. I imagine he'll sign it. It's today in Ohio. How meaningful is the changeover that is coming to the leadership of the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party? Laura, the Cuyahoga County Democratic Party is one of the most powerful agencies in the state that can actually, when it does its job, steer statewide elections. What's going on? Right, exactly. So we're talking about the first new Democratic Party chair in five years, replacing Chantel Brown now that she's in Congress. And you could argue that outside of government, this is the most powerful political position in Northeast Ohio. And they can drive Democratic turnout. That can influence statewide elections for governor and Senate, which are both up for grabs this year. It's also symbolic of this transition we've talked about many times on this podcast of new leadership in Cuyahoga County with a new generation of government leaders and business leaders that are reshaping our future. So there are four candidates who are confirmed to be looking to take this position. State Representative Kent Smith, former Shaker Heights City Councilman Rob Zimmerman, independent political consultant and former Bedford School Board member Andy Mizick, and David Brock, who's an education and outreach coordinator for a nonprofit housing organization. So none of the big names you see in politics really right now. Well, you know, what, what's interesting is the, the, the failure of the Democratic Party to get out the vote since Chantel Brown's been in charge of it and even before. The, the, when you have Cuyahoga County vote in large numbers, Democrats win statewide. And when the Democrats in Cuyahoga County don't vote, they don't win any statewide races. Uh, Chantel Brown has failed miserably to get out the Cuyahoga County vote. The turnout has been abysmally bad. So... That should be the focus. But the focus of the Democratic Party for the last five years or more has been about the internecine choosing of which candidates should win and the power politics. Uh, You know, it's evidenced by Dave Wondolowski, right? He's going to end up on the port board because the Cuyahoga County Council won't vote on it. Um, You know, you you wonder what's going on there. So this is an important... 
local people that you're talking about, right? Like if you're picking over who to endorse in a, in a city race, you're not thinking about the bigger thing of how to get out the vote. I mean, interestingly, the people Seth Richardson talked to, nobody criticized her. They said she did what she could with what she had and that the party's just not the same kind of powerhouse that it was 20 years ago under Jimmy DeMora. But then again, you have people that are probably trying not to upset you know the congresswoman from northeast ohio so but they had the worst year this primary that they'd had since 20, uh, 2014 in turnout but they they do look at some successes um and say that democrats were already on a steep decline when brown took over and she had a really tough job to do she didn't do it. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, she didn't do it. I mean, the, because the focus was on the the the, the races. I mean, the Democratic Party is all focused on maintaining certain positions and 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 propping up candidates instead of leaving that to the voters. Their focus should be one hundred percent on getting out the vote. I mean, that you know, that's what should happen. The voters will pick. Who who the candidates are? Get out the vote, and and there there's been no effort. You go back to the days of Lou Stokes and Stephanie Tubbs Jones. Cuyahoga County voted. Look, Obama won in Ohio because of Cuyahoga County, and and without Cuyahoga County, a Democrat is not going to win statewide. I'm a little bit surprised Sherrod Brown isn't influencing this because he knows better than anybody what you need to do to win statewide. And that, that should be 100% the focus. Cuyahoga County and Cleveland are in, in bad shape because they are ruled by a bunch of rural legislators who gerrymandered the map. So they, we keep losing things here. The city has lost the ability to govern itself in many ways. You know, now it's going to be Airbnbs because Cuyahoga County doesn't vote. Well, and I mean, I, I can't argue with you there. We had 14 thousand uh sorry 22,000 fewer votes in the 2022 primary than they did in 2014 which had been the lowest in the last decade and a historically horrible year uh for that she did raise a lot of money but don't forget that she stayed on as uh county chair when she was competing against former state senator nina turner she got a lot of blowback for that and right. that fundraising totally dropped off right. for the party at that point she was terrible. She was the wrong person for the job. She did a bad job. She had a conflict of interest that she never acted on. And as they move forward, let's hope they get somebody that is more focused on what the job is about. It's not self-preservation. It's about getting out the vote. It's Today in Ohio. That does it for Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. Thanks.